What happens when you're mad as hell at the care facility for not taking care of mom and dad? Or a major accident happens and you think it's time to contact your attorney? Well, you might be surprised. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your M.O. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight. There is a better road ahead. Hey, everybody. It's Nancy May. Yep, from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And this is such an important show. It's a long one. So what I've decided to do is break it into two parts. My guest is Lauren Ellerman, who's an attorney with a firm of Firth and Ellerman, and she's an expert in medical malpractice with a specialty in focus on assisted and long-term care facilities and the, the whole housing community of what goes on not just between the care facilities, but also the rehab facilities, the nursing homes, the aid agencies, everything that works to hopefully help us coordinate the the proper care and well-being or, or livelihoods at the end of this time of life of our parents to make sure that they are happy and healthy as long as they possibly can be and don't have pain, are not abused, or anything that can fall into that that trap of the, oh my God, how did this happen to us scenario? So stay tuned. This is part one of a two-part series, and it's well worth listening to. But I got to tell you, the stories and the information is going to be so valuable to you. It's, it's riveting to me. So stay tuned. Here's episode number one of how to make sure that mom and dad get absolutely excellent care in a facility or with an agency or in a rehab or nursing home. Hang tight. I know you're going to love this one. I do. Hello, everybody. It's Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. We have a really interesting show. You know, I'm always saying that, but this whole industry of caring for those that we love, no matter what their age, but predominantly in the aging market, which is where we're focused, is so fascinating and quite filled with a lot of stress and strain, as we all know, and finding the right people to help you make sure that you keep your head on straight and your sanity and don't end up, as as somebody told me this morning, he said, so you don't end up bankrupt is, is really incredibly valuable, but bankrupt, not just financially, but emotionally, physically, the whole nine yards. And we have to be mad as hell and not willing to take it anymore. On that front, our guest today is Lauren Elliman. She's an attorney at our partner, actually, at the firm of Firth and Elliman, where her expertise and focus is on medical malpractice, non-compete litigation, and nursing home abuse and neglect. Whew, is that a hot subject or what? She's in the state of Virginia, so that's where she practices. She represents victims and families in the case of wrongful death, serious injury, medical malpractice, and has taught and lectured and advised attorneys on trial skills, discovery, and client services, and more. So she's sort of an expert to the experts, which I personally love on top of things. And she's also been named one of the youngest medical malpractice super lawyers. And among other things, she's actually one of the first, or if not the first, female lawyer to be considered a super lawyer, a super trial lawyer. So Go girls. Thank you, Nancy. 
And she, I, I, like if not being a lawyer and, and helping all of us with some of the mess that we're dealing with, if that's not enough, she and her husband Witt are also founders of a not-for-profit called Turn the Page, which works, which works with public schools and the families to make sure that the quality of education is strong and valid. They have a restaurant in Roanoke, Virginia. I love Virginia. Hello, Blue Ridge Mountains. And what else can you do that is not going to make me hyperventilate thinking, how do I keep up? Oh, Nancy, thanks. Thank you for that intro. I am realizing in my 40s that I do need to learn how to sit still a little bit more, but I appreciate the invitation to be part of this important conversation. No, don't sit still. Come on. We have to like jump in. If you sit still, then life passes you by, as my dad used to say. So wise man, keep going, but uh, do what you love and you'll you'll do well, right? So I want to jump into our conversation because just to start and give everybody a background, Lauren, also beyond being an attorney in a very small niche that a lot of attorneys won't take care of because, or even practice in for families. And this is why, because most attorneys and law firms are focused on the big paying clients, which are the corporations. Those of us who are individuals, yeah, you know, we may have deep pockets, but not as big as a Fortune 500 or even a large venture capital owned company. So finding somebody like Lauren and her firm and her devotion to this is truly a treasure. And that's important. But Lauren, you also took care of your mom as her power of attorney and guardian over the course of 20 years with her life, right? Well, legally speaking, I was not her guardian. But yes, I was her healthcare power of attorney as well as helped with her finances. So my mom always had capacity. In fact, she's a very smart lady. But she had multiple sclerosis. She was diagnosed with MS when I was, I think, a freshman in high school. And unfortunately, this was um, in the 90s and uh, remitting MS really was not what mom had. She had the more aggressive type of MS. And so she was bedridden, wheelchair bound and homebound for the last, I'd say, 15 years of, of my life and her life. And I became her caregiver. I became her emotional support provider. I helped coordinate in-home care. Now, I was not a 24-hour caregiver. Let me say that. That is the most overwhelming job in the world. Thank God my mom had the means to help hire folks. So when I say I was her caregiver, I, of course, you know, took her to the bathroom and got her to the hospital and the doctor and all of that, but not 24 hours a day for 15 years. I don't know how anyone could have done that. Um, thankfully, I had... Mom had wonderful people who helped us in that on a day-to-day basis who became our family and who we're still in touch with and are grateful for. Mom passed about a year and a half ago, but we're still part of their lives and so grateful for their help. I understand. I was not a hands-on caregiver. I did it from 1,200 miles away. Mom and dad were in Florida and I was up in, in the state of Connecticut. So I understand that. And yes, it is incredibly debilitating, physically debilitating to do so. So Those of you who are doing this, if you can, at the very least, I recommend hiring one or two additional people that you've got on the side that you can call on that are there to to help give you some relief because it is a job that is incredibly exhausting to do on your own. And I don't say it's not appreciated. I think it's incredibly appreciated by the the people that the families that we people that we care for. The other people in our family don't often understand how much this takes out of us. And <laughs> My eight-year-old told me on more than one occasion, why do you have to go take care of Gammy every time she gets sick? 
um, why can't you stay home and be with me? <laughs> and, Aww. you know, so you do hear it, the sandwich generation, you know, um, it is hard to both raise children and take care of a, an elderly patient, you know, loved one. But at the same time, that's what we do for each other. That's what we're called to do. And it's really hard. And I can't wait to talk about ways to empower families to do a better job and to use the system to our advantage, because right now the system is totally broken. And that's what we're here to talk about. So we're going to talk about nursing homes, care facilities, and I use the term care in quotes. <laughs> Right. Because there are places that are good from what I've seen and from others who have used different types of care. And again, skilled care is also in quotes in, in many cases. It seems like the smaller ones can be very much more personal. However, they're not as pretty as others. And they're also these care facilities, uh, assisted, independent and memory care are not really medical facilities, correct? They're not. And let me let me start by just defining the terms that we're talking about. Thank you. So under federal law, there is something called a nursing home. A nursing home provides medical care. And that's where you get the term skilled care or long-term care. So under the nursing home umbrella, skilled care is provided for 100 days. Medicare will pay for only 100 days of skilled care. That includes rehab? Correct. Yep. PT, OT, ST. And it's not that you even have to go to those places. You can go home. You can. And we'll talk about that in just a second. So nursing homes, they provide the two levels of care. There's that skilled care, the rehab, you know, the post-hip fracture, you need to get rehab, you know, the post-fall at home kind of rehab. And that is medical care under federal and state law. Medicare will pay up to 100 days. And then after that, it's paid for either by Medicaid or private pay. Then there's assisted living facilities. Now, assisted living facilities are fascinating because they don't provide medical care. So you hear the words assisted living and you get the brochure and it shows that there's nurses and it shows that there's a doctor. There's no doctor. They don't have to have nurses. It is basically a marketing ploy. It's like all natural sweeteners, right? What does that mean? <laughs> So assisted living under most states only has the legal requirement to provide the same care that a college dorm or a group home for mentally handicapped or challenged adults, and that's food and shelter, and that's it. So when we're talking about long-term care, continuing care, it's important to define the terms. Assisted living is not medical care. And that's where so many of the problems arise because families assume it is medical care. They assume their $8,000 a month is going for something. Or 30000 in my parents' case. Yeah. Right. 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 So it's important to know what it is you're looking for and signing up for. And, and let me just make this point before I forget, Nancy. There are plenty of places that you can research the facilities that you're looking at for your loved one. But the best place, if it's skilled care, is medicare.gov. So because skilled care is healthcare, because Medicare pays for it, Medicare actually, Center for Medicare Services does a really good job of rating the facilities, differentiate the facilities. And the most important factor to look at, if you're on medicare.gov and you type in your zip code and you're looking at facilities, is for profit or nonprofit. Mm. And we'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. And it doesn't guarantee that a not-for-profit is giving you better quality care or a for-profit is giving you better quality care. Well, in my experience, I have never sued a nonprofit. Never. Really? That's very yep. interesting. Yep. Very and it's not because I don't want to sue them. They have insurance. If they were to, to cause harm to somebody, I absolutely would file suit. 
But when a nonprofit, and it has to be a true nonprofit, it's usually the church or synagogue affiliated ones. The religious affiliations are usually the better ones. There are some that are fake nonprofits where they claim to be a nonprofit, but then if you look on GuideStar, they, you know, they had $1 in donations last year. That's another good place to look too, is GuideStar to even look Guidestar. at yep. how they're funded and where they are financially, because if they don't have the means to care for everybody that's in under their roof, then then that in itself is going to be a red flag for you too. It should be. So we think about what the goal, the legal obligation of a for-profit corporation is, is to make money for the shareholders. Yep. And so at the end of the day, if they're $10,000 in the kitty, then it's not really $10,000, it's millions for-profit skilled care is very profitable, which is why venture capitalists are getting involved. And how the business is even stacked is because the business is stacked in several layers. And you think that you're contracting with the owner of the company. Technically, in many cases, or most cases, you're not. You are contracting with the service provider that has a business under the roof of that venture firm. Yes. We lawyers call it the corporate shell game. Yep. But that's why Medicare.gov is so helpful because on Medicare.gov, you'll be able to see, are they for profit and are they a chain? And that's what you want to know. It's okay to have a for profit that's owned by a husband and wife that have run Mm -hmm. it for 40 years and they're members of your community and they attend the the same organizations and churches and rotary club that you do because there's accountability in that. What you don't want to do is sign your loved one up for a for-profit facility that's run out of, you know, New York, where a venture capitalist Canada. firm just bought it and fired all the good local nurses so that they could make an extra million bucks a year. Yep. Yep. So that's number one. If you're looking because you have a loved one that needs either rehabilitation after an acute care injury, like a fall or a fracture, that kind of thing, easy to look up on Medicare.gov. Your state assisted living facility websites will be where you go to look for the rankings for assisted living. In the Commonwealth of Virginia, assisted living facilities are regulated and licensed through the Department of Social Services. But all you have to Google is Florida assisted living compare or Texas assisted living compare or California assisted living compare. One note. Please do not go to a placeformom.com and think that's the same thing as your state's DSS ratings and complaints and compliance. It looks like it is on Google. It's not. (laughs) Those places, you know, care.com, a place for mom, there's a number of them that are out there. And people know in, in the show here that I have done what I call secret shopping of care facilities. I would much rather do secret shopping for Nordstrom's, but (laughs) ice cream shops, sign me up for that job. My poor husband says, please don't call one of those places again and go looking around because we'll get barraged for, for months on end. But it's very interesting to hear how aggressive they are. And the last one that I did, I remember getting a call from somebody and they were going down the list of my, you know, financials for the person I was caring for, who I said was my aunt at the time. And they wanted to know her social security number her finances, social security, anything, stocks and bonds. Where they owned, I mean, they got very, very yep. personal no. very quickly and were incredibly resistant when I said, I'm sorry, I don't really know you. That's that's not of your business at this right, time. Exactly. And then insulting when I put a price number. I think I put a price of $3,500 a month for care to start with. And they would say, well, you know, you're really not able to afford this place. So that's that's the fear of missing out, the insult like you're not worthy or the person that you love is not worthy. And so it's a sales tactic that you need to be aware of. But that's beyond where we're going. Yeah. 
And those websites are aggregators. They don't care if it's good care or not. And so really go to the state licensing agency, feds, government, medicare.gov, skilled care, assisted living, go to the state websites. And, you know, just two little notes too. We also need to talk about home health care because yep. home health care is, is even more nebulous than assisted living or a skilled care because home health care is everything from someone who shows up and makes a meal and sits there to someone who's providing skilled care services in the home for an hour or two a day. And that's licensed in every state by yet a third licensing agency. In Virginia, it's the Department of Health Professionals. So if you want to look into a home health care company in your area, I would also look, number one, for-profit or nonprofit. Very important. Is it a franchise? There's a lot of franchises out there. And the quality of care per franchise varies greatly. It does. And a couple things I just want to note. Home health care companies claim that they do background checks. I had a oh. horrible experience with my mom in Florida years ago. It's, it's worth the one minute sidebar where a brand new home health care nurse that an agency sent to my mother's home tried to defraud my mother and actually got enough information that she then had her boyfriend pose as my brother who claimed to be in an emergency situation and needed cash. And I called the company and said, this nurse defrauded my mom. They said, well, we did a background search on her. I said, well, I can do a background search too. And I looked her up and she got out of the federal penitentiary in Maryland, drove to Florida and applied for your job. So what states did you do a background check in? And they said, well, Florida only. I said, she'd lived there for a week. Of course. So be very careful when facilities claim they're doing background checks. The skilled care facilities have to do an all-state check. Home health care companies do not, by law, have to do an all-state check. I'll share one story on that front. You, you mentioned your mom, my dad, who did not have dementia, but at a certain age, I mean, he was, he, he was the head of household throughout our entire life went through a panic situation and was always worried about finances, which I, I appreciate greatly. But he was afraid that he couldn't get into the safe deposit box, which I had the key for. And I kept telling him, one day he goes into full panic. The aide that was there through an agency took him to the bank. They drilled it out. And the contents of that safe deposit box, which I don't have the full, I didn't have the full list of, I had some idea, but not the full list, ended up in the trunk of her car. When we fired the agency, we found out about this and it was returned, but I have no idea whether all of it that was returned. That happens a lot. I mean, I get cases all the time where someone will say, you know, my dad has $40 a month outside of a social security benefit. And I found out every month he's been giving that $40 to one of the nurses or whatever it is. So yep. even well-meaning people in my mom, I mean, my mom wanted to help this woman. She liked this woman and then she became a target, unfortunately. Yeah. You know, I think as they get older or we get older, we want to be more trusting. And I understand that, especially when somebody that you don't know initially comes into your home regularly, they almost become like a family member. Yes. And there's a good thing on that in that they are typically more accepting of care when they have a trust level for somebody, which makes life easier for you. But on the bad part is that they become more trusting. And then for people who are not particularly honest or have values, that becomes an issue. And you know, we had an aide that I referred to as the biker chick, which is the one that drilled out the, you know, so, uh, and then one that we had to actually had to almost feel like we had to provide psychological counseling because she had lost her grandmother and didn't know how to handle it while she was taking care of mom and dad. And it was, it was sad, you know, but, uh, and that was a franchise. And we all know 
it's a really hard job to do. And we also know that this level of healthcare provider, the certified nursing assistant at the nursing home, the CNA or the personal care assistant through the home health agency, they're not doing this work because they have a ton of job options. They're low paid positions, which is heartbreaking. They're low skill positions, which is heartbreaking. It only takes six weeks to become a CNA and you can do it online. And so the folks about who are, $300. Yeah. Yeah. So the folks who are drawn to those jobs don't have a lot of options, but also, unfortunately, our system is in such that they're probably the most economically challenged in our society. And so desperation, I, I don't think people go into those jobs to hurt people. I know they don't. They go into those jobs to help people, but the situations become so overwhelming at times that harm occurs. And that's why it's really yeah. important to know, is this a facility that's nonprofit and takes those profits and hires more nurses? Or is this a facility who takes those profit and siphons them off for the home office or for the stockholders? And therefore, you have only one CNA taking care of 30 patients on a hall per shift. And you had mentioned in our, our earlier call before we started recording that the state of Virginia and about 10 other states does not require a minimum number of caregivers in certain facilities, Correct. which is even more alarming. And the number of care people or, or staff members now understand that staff members is different than the people who are doing the hands-on care, but I think they're sometimes limped, lumped in together. They are. So you could have five, five administrative people on the floor and only two caregivers for 50 people, and you might meet the state limit. So that's incredibly stressful for those that are doing the work of taking care of mom and dad while they're in one of these facilities as well. It is. And it's tough. And Medicare.gov. So this is where the federal government really does want to protect people. I mean, I know we can rail against the government and bureaucracy and all of that. But Center of Medicare, Center for Medicare Services for years has been concerned about baby boomers entering nursing homes without adequate legal protection. This has been an ongoing mm -hmm. issue. And so CMS requires a certain level of staffing for a nursing home. And in a nutshell, this is what happens. When your mom's checked into a nursing home and she's a Medicare patient, someone called the MDS coordinator at the nursing home sends a document to Medicare and says, Miss Smith requires two-person assist. She's in physical therapy. She's in speech therapy. She can't bathe herself. And this is her level of care. And they give her an acuity score. And so it's, a, it's basically a number to indicate how severe her disability is. And then Medicare sends back to the facility after they get all of the acuity scores for all of the patients in the facility, Medicare sends back, okay, you have patients that are this sick, so you need three hours of per, you know, hands-on patient care a day for your patient. Now, three hours may sound like a little. You're paying for 24-hour care and the person gets three hours of care, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that in most facilities, it's closer to one hour of care a day if that. Um, for 24 hours of presence. So there is a level that Medicare says, this is how many CNAs, this is how many LPNs, this is how many RNs need to be in the facility this week to take care of your patients. Some state laws just mirror the federal Medicare recommendations. Some states are, are a little bit more simple. For every 20 bodies, you need two CNAs. For every 20 bodies, you need one RN. For every 20 bodies, you need one LPN. Virginia, unfortunately, is one of 10 states where there are neither adoption of the federal staffing requirements or an independent staffing requirement, and that's for assisted living facilities and skilled care facilities. So it would be legal for one CNA, one certified nursing assistant, to provide all activities of daily living care 
for 60 patients, which we all know <sighs> is impossible. The, the law in Virginia is so weak. Our lawmakers are so scared of the hospital and the for-profit healthcare lobby that they just won't, they won't do anything useful. And it is a lack of political will issue. But until we have the guts to say that there should be staffing requirements as we do in daycares and foster cares and prisons, mm -hmm. then our loved ones here in Virginia are constantly at risk of bad care due to understaffing because understaffing. Yeah, which is why it's important if you have a, a parent or a loved one in a care facility that you're responsible for, or you even are concerned about their quality of care in life, that you or somebody that you hire is there with them 24-7. Now, I'm going to also tell you that the facility will also look at Mrs. Smith, your mom, and say, well, she got private care. We don't need to worry about her. Right. So understand that that is not right either. And you have to stand up for for your rights and say so. However, being there, if they need to get up to go to the bathroom or have bed sores or soil themselves or have difficulty eating, whatever the case right. may be, it will make sure that you, they have, they're safer. I mean, it's just simple as that. And you know that you can push the button and get support if you need it. And if they don't come, then you have the ability to go up the, the food That's chain, right. I call it to make your voice heard and be firm about it. Right. And, and two things that I want to talk about, Nancy, because you and I talked about this in our call. Number one, pre-COVID, the care in for-profit assisted living, home health, and nursing homes was pretty lousy. After COVID, it's horrible. And the reason for that is- To so go from bad to, I don't say bad or- No, it's bad to horrible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> bad to worse to horrible, right? There's a multi-factor cause. Number one- you could make the same amount of money bagging groceries at Publix or Kroger that you could as a CNA in a skilled facility. This was pre-vaccines when everybody was dying of COVID. You're going to go work at Kroger. So there's a huge exodus of low-skilled um, low staff from skilled care facilities. So the understaffing problem. But even nurses are leaving. Yeah, everybody's leaving. Yep. It's a big challenge. And it's not just because of the pay or the, or the hours. Some of it is also because of the the quality of, of management course. that's overseeing yes. them. Yep. So that's a big issue. There, Cause there are people who want to be there and, and do this is their life yep. calling, which I get. And so that's why staffing is important because if I call the nursing home down the street after my mom's had a hip fracture and say, do you have a bed for my mom who needs physical therapy? If the nursing staff there knows, yeah, I have a bed, but I don't have staffing ratios to care for your mom. Then they have the legal obligations to say, I have a bed, but I can't meet her care needs. So no, we don't have room for her. Whereas um, in Virginia, the answer is we have a bed, so therefore come on down. And regardless of whether we can provide the care, if there's an empty bed, we'll take them. And that's a problem. The other problem with COVID is we weren't allowed to be the eyes and ears anymore in the long-term care facilities. And it used to be that you would go visit your loved one. The minister would pop by once a month. Your friend from high school would visit her great aunt and happen to see your mom in the hallway. And so you'd get report from multiple people about how your loved one in a long-term care facility was doing. And when COVID shut it down, you didn't have eyes and ears anymore. And unfortunately, what happened is the staff was so stressed, they didn't have time to be the eyes and ears. And so the quality of care has actually just gotten worse, which is really hard. And there was so much isolation. We know about the isolation for those of us who were healthy. 
But can you imagine being no. having, having somebody that you love in a care facility because you think that's a safe place for them to be and them literally becoming imprisoned in their room and not able to leave? Yep. And especially if you've got dementia or any kind of other issues, for them to even know that you've fallen when you won't be able to get to a pull cord or have the voice to yell because you're unconscious it's just unconscionable. It's, you know, it's like monkeys in a cage is the only way I can describe it, which is a horrible way of thinking. But I think that's probably as close as we can get. It's nightmarish. Now I want to, I want to jump a little forward. So, you know, post COVID or even pre COVID about understanding litigation. Sure. Not that I'm a, I'm big on, you know, suing people left and right, but sometimes there's a rhyme and a reason and a cause for it because you want to make a change right. in the system yep, so- and you want to see what's right done. Yep. So we get, I don't know, 60, I think this is a correct number, about 60 calls a month from families who have loved ones who have suffered from some kind of medical trauma. And we immediately decline 97% of those. So, you know, of those 60, 58, I say, you don't have a, a legal claim for the following reasons. It's really hard to litigate a political or corporate issue. And let me explain why. If I sue the local nursing home because they allowed my mom to develop a stage four bed sore Mm -hmm. and it became infected and my mom died, the nursing home probably has insurance through a third party, just like I have insurance through State Farm. So if I hit you, Nancy, in my car and you sue me, it's not coming out of my pocket. It's coming out of State Farm's pocket. So I'm not really motivated to change my behavior all that much. And if it's still profitable for me to be a bad driver or profitable for me to understaff the facility, and I have a third party healthcare insurance company paying my claims, it doesn't change behavior at all. It doesn't change anything. So litigation rarely, and this is the heartbreaking part of it, because we do hold the civil justice system in esteem. That's why I became an attorney to help people. We hold the civil justice system in esteem, thinking that it can effectuate change And it really doesn't effectuate much change from facility to facility to facility. The most effective way for a family member to be an advocate for their loved one after the bad thing has happened. And let me bookmark it. And I want to come back to say how to be an advocate while they're still in the care. We'll do that in just a minute. But to be an advocate after the bad thing has happened, number one is to call the licensing agency of that care. So if it's a nursing home, it's the State Department of Health. If it's assisted living, it's the Department of Social Services. If it's home health, the Department of Health. And file a complaint because what those complaints do, and file it for Center of Medicare Services if it's a nursing home. Investigators come out anonymously. They pull the records. They sit in the facility for a week. They pull all the records, and then they write up a public report, which, by the way, they're all available online about how that facility did good or did bad. And if they did a bad job, they fine them huge amounts of money. And that's how care gets better. I'm going to ask you one quick question there, because you said they come out anonymously. Mm-hmm. Do they come out anonymously or they do they come out unannounced? Well, unannounced. It's not anonymous because obviously you're asking for medical records. I just wanted to clarify that. Yeah, because anonymously, you know, if you're if you're asking for records, they're going to say, who that's the hell exactly are you? Right. Yeah, so it right? is unannounced. And that's what I meant. <laughs> Filing a formal complaint, and it's funny because when I tell people that, when I say, hey, listen, there's nothing a lawyer can do for you, and here are the many reasons why litigation is not a solution to your problem, but file a complaint, people say, well, that won't do anything. And I say, it does. It does more than a lawsuit ever will because that's public record. Lawsuits are usually private. 
and and we'll get into arbitration agreements as well in just for a second. Mm-hmm. But filing a complaint is the number one thing that you can do. The number two thing you can do is be an advocate for better care. And that is after your loved one has even left the facility. I mean, I own a restaurant. I get Google reviews. Not the best cheeseburger I've ever had. People will take time as a consumer to write a review about a $14 purchase, but then they don't take time to write a review on Google about a facility that caused harm to their loved one. Why the heck not? Yeah, I think they're afraid of of the wrath of the facility or something else well, or the anger, which is which is not, not right. right. I, I mean, mean, there's no. It's reason. a consumer choice. I go to the you know the nice Kroger, not the ugly Kroger, because I like to shop in a nicer Kroger. We are free to share our consumer experiences, and healthcare in the United States is not a right; it's a consumer experience, and we need to realize that. The other thing, on just so that you know, in Google reviews and, and everybody listening, when you write a review for a care facility, and I had this experience myself because the facility, the first facility my parents were in, that they wanted to go to, to not be a burden to my sister and myself. And and I greatly appreciate that heartfelt effort. But I found some complaints. And when I went back to find them, they had disappeared. Mm -hmm. So there is a way to move a complaint in a ranking far down the list, because we typically only look at maybe the first sheet at most, maybe the second, but you're not going to look and the 23rd page on a Google search either. Recently, I had a facility that had gotten a lot of bad online reviews. And I noticed that their Google went from two to like four stars. And what had happened is they asked every staff member to go on and rate the facility. And I could see the names of the nurses popping up. This is a great facility. I totally trust them with my loved one. And I deposed these folks. And I said, did they ask you to give a five-star review? Yes. Who asked you? So-and-so. Why? So yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, Because I signed my paycheck. Right, exactly. (laughs) So the point I want to get back to is how to be an advocate when you have to rely on third-party care. Because so many of us do. Not a lot of us can leave our lives and our families to be that 24-hour caregiver. And so many of us have to rely on everything from adult daycare to skilled care to assisted living to memory care, you know, to home health. And there are ways to make sure that if anyone in that system is going to get better care, it's your loved one. And I'd like to share those ways briefly. Before we go forward with Lauren's story on this particular episode, I'm going to leave this as a cliffhanger. Yes, there's a lot more in store here at Doing It Best with Elder Care Success and with Lauren Ellerman, who is, she's she's just an amazing attorney who's really dedicated to, to making sure that our mom, our dad, and even her own mom and parents have had the best quality care that they could in facilities that don't always necessarily look out for us, even though they may look like it from the outside. So stay tuned for the second episode of this show. And so before we go, I'm going to suggest that if you have others that you know and love and care about and or even friends that you'd like to give a special gift to, please share this link with them because I got to tell you, the gift of this show is really better than than any money or monetary or even bouquet of flowers can do. Because the people that we're bringing forward here are the experts, the insiders, the people who know the tricks, the traps of the trade. This is my gift to you, the show, doing it best with elder care success. I love doing it, if you can't tell. And I hope that it'll be a gift that you can share with others as well. So stay tuned for episode two. It's Nancy May at Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. There's a lot more in store. This show is sponsored by Care Manity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies. 
a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Caremanity LLC.